0: Greetings! So, I think I finally figured out what this podcast is exactly, and much like my captions, it's really just whatever I feel like at the moment. And what I feel like at the moment is doing a book review of Stranger in a Strange Land and talking about how it relates to polyamory and how it helped me identify as polyamorous, uh, while also talking about some other really interesting science fiction concepts. But first, I just wanted to give a quick update on The Read Aloud and Her Forever Virgin really quick if for some reason you care about that. So I recently put out chapter 6 even though in the read aloud which I'm still editing that video together, I talked about how I hadn't put out chapter 6 yet which indicates to me the read alouds are not a great place to give updates. And surprisingly I am almost done with chapter 7. Actually scratch that. I am done with chapter 7. I just need to edit it, and then I can put it out there. So you'll be getting that sooner than expected. But anyways, getting into Stranger in a Strange Land, and just so that I could discuss it fully and my own thoughts on it and how it relates to sexuality, I'm going to give out this warning, which is to say that if you've never read Stranger in a Strange Land and you think that you might want to, which I highly recommend, just be warned that this video is going to contain tons of spoilers. So if you've never heard of the sci-fi classic Stranger in a Strange Land, it's the story of Valentine Michael Smith, a human who was raised by Martians after his parents died in a murder-suicide. Yeah, it, it never really occurred to me how important this particular part of the story might be. But as the story explains, and why it's it's relevant to the plot, at least in the beginning, is that his mother had a husband that was on the spaceship, but she cheated on her husband with another crew member, and when Michael was born and it was clear that it wasn't his kid, he killed his wife, the father and then himself. And then we never get an explanation as to why the other five crew members died, although it seems to be implied that the Martians might have disappeared them, as they so tend to do. But the, the reason why that is important to the plot, and why I never realized it was so important to the plot until I read it the second time, is that it's the first moment in which Heimlin talks about the dangers of jealousy. And obviously that's a very extreme example. And as the book goes on, there are smaller examples of jealousy. And for for a lot of the first part of the book, there's a thing about how, for some reason, the scientists are afraid of what it would be like for Michael to meet a woman. Because on Mars, they don't have male and female sexes the way we do here on Earth. The way they explain it is that the Martians have a different life cycle. So in the early part of their life cycle, there's a point where I guess they can lay eggs or be impregnated. And then in a later part of their life cycle, they are able to fertilize the eggs or the younger Martians to create more Martians. And there's also another interesting thing that doesn't really come up until the end about how on Mars... It's kind of the reverse of the way we view life here, where life is most precious when it begins here on Earth. Whereas over there, life is the least valuable when it begins and they let their babies kind of just die off until only the strong survive. And those are the ones that get to make it into adulthood and be a part of society and then eventually become what they call an old one which is basically like your consciousness is a ghost. Which, this book, too, it has this weird theme, and it's a highly contentious book, and personally I'm in the category of people that loves it, but I was not a fan of this bizarre subplot that the character Mike might be the Archangel Michael, and that the human consciousness goes somewhere else if we're able to, I guess, ascend... To heaven like if we've achieved that that level of thought that that aspect of the story was kind of confusing to me especially the first time i read it, it it made a little bit more sense on this second go-around reading it so getting back to michael's story though and how it relates to sexuality so early on this this woman sneaks into his room where no women are supposed to be allowed and he meets his first woman and finds out what the difference is and during it there's this thing about how it is strange for him to see a female for the first time and he is kind of innocently curious about what the difference is between man and woman which by the way too this this book for as much as i love it it, it's got a lot of sexism in it like there's some stuff that like it it was pretty progressive for 1961 but reading it in the year 2020 or wait no 2021 so actually almost exactly 60 years later there, there are definitely aspects that don't hold up and personally like I am not very well versed in gender politics although I am very aware of it and I, I would be curious for people that are big believers in the uh I guess not believers, I don't want to say. That would imply that there, there's a certain amount of faith which is required in it, which is another topic of this book, too. What is faith? What does it mean to have faith, and what is truth? Uh, but and, and personally, too, I consider the whole gender spectrum thing to be truth. If people feel differently than the way they were born, that's their own business, and they should live their life in whatever way makes them happy. But this book does talk a lot about the bipolarity of the sexes and how that affects human psychology which i suppose as well that that was the conception for much of human history so even if it is a misconception that there is a bipolarity of the sexes much of human history was governed by that misconception of bipolarity but regardless of any out-of-date notions of gender roles this book still has some incredibly sexist moments that are uncomfortable 60 years later. Like, the main character, Jubal, who is supposed to be a self-insert character for Heimlin, and a really fun character to read, too. There are just large portions of the book that are just him going off on a dialogue, which is also why I'd recommend uh, listening to the audiobook on Audible, Which does not bring me to a sponsor because no one will ever sponsor this. Even Audible for all their willingness to sponsor just about anyone. But one of the more shocking lines in the book is when the character Jill tells Mike. And by the way, you have to keep in mind too, Jill is the first female that Mike meets. She teaches him a lot about what it means to be human, what it means to be sexual and she also tells him that nine times out of ten, when a woman is raped, it's her fault. And it's one of the most uncomfortable things to hear. I remember, too, the first time I listened to the audiobook and that line came up, I was at work, my old job, and I, I was just shocked. And normally, in this book, when a character says something that isn't so great, another character, usually Jubal, will chime in and tell them why they're wrong but in that moment there's nothing or no one to tell Jill why that line of thinking is wrong and it it seems to be like that is what Heimlin is saying it's hard to tell it could just be what the character thinks but it's still not a great moment (laughs) at least in the way it's handled and there are some other things too though where it's like because obviously we still deal with sexism today And there are still a lot of men that think women have no place in the workforce. Or if they are in the workforce, that they should only be in subservient roles. And that is certainly the uh, line of thinking of the character Stinky, a uh, Muslim character, who at the beginning of the book has some kind of sexist thoughts, and at one point even... I think he says something like he just kind of gave up on finding a woman, or at least that he wouldn't marry outside of his faith, but certainly, um, Heimlin did not predict how independent women would become in the future, and that's another thing too, like the way, like, Jubal basically surrounds himself with a harem of people that also work for him, like, the, the book makes another question that he is both having sex with them, but that they are also on his payroll that is explicitly stated Um, but I'm gonna get off this topic because I feel like it's distracting me from talking about the positive parts of the book which even in those positive parts there are negative aspects such as with with the way the book introduces the idea of polyamory and I think to me this is part of why I was a little bit hesitant to identify as polyamorous even though I also agreed with a lot of stuff in the book. And, and so where this really comes in is, I think, in the second act of the book, where Mike leaves with Jill on a kind of aimless journey around America to figure out what it means to be human. And along the way, he's also teaching Jill Martian. And the, the way the book explains it is that basically the Martian language kind of gives you insight into the way that the universe works and how matter is put together particularly so that you could kind of deconstruct your own dna because it's also talked about how mike is able to control his body like he's able to build his own muscle mass just by thinking about it and he's even able to make his face less androgynous and more masculine at one point just because Jill is afraid that he's going to attract some guys which that's another thing too is I can't tell if the book is homophobic or if Heimlin was just too afraid to bring in gay characters because he does seem to acknowledge that there would be men that are attracted to Mike as he receives many lewd photos from both women but men whom are referred to as confused, which is why I'm like, hmm, is that homophobic? Or is that just what the character Jubal, who once again is a stand-in for Heimland, thinks about gay men? And then in another point too, there's something about how it says that Jill could not have handled it if she found out she had lesbian tendencies, which is also just another weird line that I'd I'd really be curious to see how this book would be adapted today if you were to, like, try to modernize the story. But going back to the the polyamorous part. So where it really starts to come in is when Jill becomes a stripper in Las Vegas and Mike goes to one of her shows. And uh, using the Martian language, he's able to show her what it's like when other guys are looking at her and kind of get a read on their emotion. There's also a weird thing, too, about how the Martian language, if you know it, you may also be able to read minds. It's a it's a lot to get into. This is a very bad spoiler review. So anyways, though, seeing the way that other guys see her kind of makes her realize, oh, there's nothing wrong with sharing her body and expressing herself through sexuality with other people besides just Mike. I really liked the way they had that discussion and the way that she came to that conclusion and to some extent i am kind of drawing inspiration from that in her forever version uh which i realize how stupid it sounds to compare my erotic novel to one of the greatest sci-fi classics of all time unless you're one of the haters of this book in which case you're probably like no they're they're probably on the on the same quality As for her Forever Virgin's quality, I will not defend that. And so later on, though, in the book, it also discusses the other way that people kind of get drawn into this line of thinking. Uh, And then where I personally started getting confused and was like, hmm, I'm not really sure I want that. Especially considering that, you know, a lot of this is what happened in the 60s after this book came out. So Mike's religion, which is called the Church of All Worlds, in which he teaches the Martian language to people, he creates like a family unit that is called a nest, and it's basically like one big polyamorous love circle. Which, if you're into that kind of thing, and if that's the lifestyle you want to live, and you know other people who are willing to live that life with you, by all means go for it, but that's not really what I want out of a polyamorous relationship especially too, like in this book there's this thing about how like oh you know we can all just live off the land because this Martian religion also makes it so that we literally don't have to eat for days some of us who are good enough at it anyways but you know in reality there is no such Martian religion or powers which allow us to just not eat and have the energy for sex and to live for days at a time no we we are bound by biology and at least the way I've seen it played out in the modern world where you know it's like people trying to live off the land that lifestyle personally doesn't really appeal to me and I I think I kind of alluded to this too but also just being a member of a family like that it's just not really something that appeals to me when I think about it but I, I did like a lot of what he was talking about with the disassociation of ownership towards the ones that we love. And obviously, you know, um, consent is the number one thing when it comes to relationships in the real world. Like, we, we can't all live that hippie commune lifestyle as I've already said. It's not for everyone. And polyamory is certainly not for everyone. I, I personally can't stand those people that are so in their own head or i guess up their own ass that they think well if it works for me it should work for everyone else and that goes for anyone whether you are a devout christian or some polyamorous hippie living off the land with all your other commune lovers just let people live the life that works for them is that so much to ask for which is also to another interesting aspect of this book actually is that Instead of trying to convert people away from their current religion, Mike's Church of All Worlds, partly because it is just a language school, tries to reconcile with all other religions by encouraging them to practice both faiths. Which I guess is something else too that it's also never really occurred to me until just right now that I'm recording this, is that the book does seem to imply that Judeo-Christian religions had it a little bit more right than all the other religions, at least in the context of this book. Although it does also seem to imply that there is something about reincarnation. I mean, if you've ever read other mythologies like Hindu mythology, uh, you'll see that Heimelin is borrowing from more than just one place in terms of where he's drawing inspiration from. Something too, though, that, that surprised me, and by this point, when, I, when I'd read the book three years ago, even though I wasn't the kinky caption crafter yet, I was still pretty certain in what I enjoyed. <laughs> and th- this whole thing about being able to just think your body to what you want it to be, um, it, if you've read my captions, certainly enough of them, you might know that I have a thing for body transformation, like in a very fantastical and unrealistic way which this book does uh to the point that i actually even made a caption based on this book which is actually why i ended up rereading it god i live the stupidest life but there is something kind of appealing though like how it it describes that mike could just think his face from being less androgynous to more masculine um like i'm not uncomfortable in my own skin but I also think sometimes it would be fun if I could be taller or if I could be more I guess feminine for a sexual situation and then just kind of go back to my regular self for my normal day-to-day life. Another aspect of the book that I personally also really enjoyed was how it discusses the ways in which we are always being sexual creatures even if our intents aren't necessarily to have sex. You know, just in the little ways that we interact with the people that we're close with and the things we say, although that once again does bring it back to that whole uncomfortable place of, by our modern day standards, Jubal's a pretty bad boss. But you know, just kind of talking about the ways that we might say something to someone or the complex ways that we might feel about somebody else, and that that brings me to another thing that I love about this book, especially having read it on this second go around. There's a a common phrase derived from this book, or I, I suppose it's a word rather, called "grok," and commonly, like if you hear a nerd use it, they're probably just saying that they grok it as a replacement for the word understanding. But the book discusses how to grok something means to understand it so entirely that you both hate it and love it in equal measure. And I I don't think that's necessarily what Heimerlin literally meant. That was more like Mike's way of trying to translate the Martian language. But I think what he's really trying to say, you know, is that in relationships we do have problems with the people we love the people we love are flawed there are things that drive me crazy about my partner but we also continue to love them despite their flaws and so in that sense we grok the people we love the people we truly love and i love this idea though of saying like yes that there is some degree of hate in love right that that you do have to understand and accept people for their flaws. And that it's entirely okay not to like those aspects about them. You know, like, we can go on having those problems and they can go on having those flaws, but as long as we understand that it is who they are, why shouldn't we love them? And I think that's my big takeaway from this the second reading of the book, though, is that for me to feel love for someone, even if it's not particularly strong or passionate, I do also need to see the flaws in them. The things about them which I do dislike. Because it makes them a more complete person. And to me, there's something more attractive about getting to see all the parts of a person, even the parts they don't want you to see. That is, I don't know, it's kind of sexy in its own way. The idea that someone would be open enough with you to share the things that they would rather be hidden. So I realized that I've been pretty rambly during this entire review, so I just want to end it by saying that, you know, I would not recommend reading this book to learn about polyamory. One, because there's actually tons of academic material that can give you a lot more information that is factual and based on real human psychological studies or at least personal experiences but also because I think this book presents only one very specific kind of polyamorous relationship which I mean for as much as I talked about it that it's not for me personally I also realized that because of especially what happened with the Manson case that particular style of living has a very negative connotation associated with it. In fact, after the Manson case, this book got banned from high school libraries. little fun fact there. But, um, yeah, so if you've actually taken the time to listen to all of this, I hope you'll take the time to hear me plug away my plugs. You can find me on Twitter, where I am getting a little bit better at posting. At Kinky Cap Crafter. You can follow me on Reddit, which is for some reason where I care about getting followers, even though I really shouldn't, by searching user forward slash Kinky Caption Crafter. You can check out my blog, kinkycaptioncrafter.blogspot.com, where I post everything that I work on related to this. And if for some reason you think I deserve money for recording this and creating erotic captions, you can go to patreon.com forward slash crafter. Um, so with that, thank you, and thou art God.